0: Welcome to the Center for a New American Securities NATSEC Women podcast series. Last year, we started a project on getting new audiences to think and talk about issues of gender, inclusivity, and national security. Schedule an event with gender in the title, and you can guarantee it is 95% women talking to other women in the audience about women's issues. So we tried other ways. Some audiences were receptive. Some weren't. Some were frustrated we were making a big deal out of a topic they thought was closed. Aston answered, move on. But among the women we know, it didn't feel nearly as clear-cut. So we're bringing you right to the source. One-on-one candid conversations with women in national security about their careers, their experience, their advice, and their lessons. Here's their stories. My name is Julie Smith. I'm the director of the Transatlantic Security Program at the Center for a New American Security. And I'm very pleased to be here with a friend of mine, Dr. Nora Benzahel, who is a distinguished scholar in residence over at American University, also known as one of the top national security analysts, I believe, in the United States, if I say so myself. You don't mind, Nora. Uh, and and couldn't be happier to be here with Nora, partly because I just like hanging out with Nora, but also because I wanted to talk to her today in our series about women in national security. And we've been asking women uh, around town some questions about what it's like to be working as a woman in national security and really grateful that you made the time today. Thank, well, thank you, you so
1: much for having me, Julie. That's a very kind introduction. I'm always happy to talk to you and always happy to talk about these issues. I think that I'm so delighted you're doing this series. It's really important. Important for women at, at every stage of their careers uh, to be getting advice and to bring these issues out and talk about them in the open.
0: Super. Well, thanks. Okay, so. The first question. What happens when you're a woman working in national security is you often are approached by sometimes younger women, sometimes women your age, or occasionally men that want to know what it's like to be a woman (laughs) working in national security. And it's interesting because some women try to run away from that type of question and deny that um, there's really any difference um, between men and women working in this field. Uh, I know early on in my career, I just tried to ignore the gender aspect. I think it was really later as I actually started working in government and in other positions that I came to appreciate that there are some unique sides and challenges to being a woman working in national security. How do you handle that question when someone comes up and asks you something like
1: that? Yeah, I get that all the time. I think many of us do, especially because I work primarily with the military, and that is still obviously a very male-dominated organization. So I was aware of that fairly early on, not so much from my dealing with my peers, but from, you know, needing to interview people in the military and to work with them and often, you know, getting this sideways look uh, <laughs> because especially early on in my career, I sort of I described them as the three strikes against me for someone who is in, you know, a stereotypical person in the military. I was Young, I was female, and I was a civilian. Right. So yeah. on three levels, I felt like I had something to prove. Um, I w- I'm, I've been very fortunate that with military people in general, there are exceptions. I, like, you know, have a couple of doozies of stories, but I'm know, sure we, we, we all won't do. get into all of those. <laughs> <laughs> but but in general, uh, one of the things I like about people in the military is that if you open your mouth and you have something interesting to say, usually they listen and can overcome that. Not everybody, obviously, but you know, I, I've found despite some of those initial hurdles, it's, you know, once you get into a conversation, once somebody sees that you actually have something to say, um, that a lot of that can fall away relatively quickly. Not with everyone, not all the time. Um, so, yeah, so, but I've been aware of that uh, since early in my career, and I know we'll probably talk about this a little bit, but it took me a long time to feel confident in what I had to say and, and to know that that reaction would happen, that all I had to do in most cases was to just keep talking and be myself, and that it would turn out okay. At the end. Yeah, and that's that's a good um, segue, actually, to
0: another question that we've been asking women in the field. Um, and that is the question of how you cope with what is commonly called the ever-famous imposter syndrome, where there is some evidence where young women find themselves doubting whether or not they should be in the job they currently have. Or whether or not they should apply for that promotion, or push for that promotion, for that matter, or apply for a special fellowship. And there's also evidence that younger men at those stages in their careers often do not encounter the ever-famous imposter syndrome. Uh, I find myself still grappling with this uh, from time to time. I think it gets a little bit easier. But how have you coped with that? First of all, have you, does this sound? Does it ring oh, a bell? Yes. <laughs>
1: <laughs> it rings a bell most days, in fact, and I think uh, you know. Not, I don't want to discourage any of the younger women who might be listening to this, but uh, it kind of keeps reappearing at every stage of your career because there's always higher things, more qualifications, or people ahead of you um, that you know. It, it's, it sticks around. Right, someone to compare yourself yeah, to. Yeah, exactly. Um, I have a, a great story about that. Actually, um, it ties back to my time at CNAS. That's not where Julie and I know each other from. We've known each other for many years, um, but you know, I was. At at CNIS for several years and wrote a report with uh, my colleague Dave Barno, with whom I do a lot of publishing now, uh, called Boardrooms and Battlefields that compared the experiences of women in the military with women in the private sector in terms of their career experiences, focused mostly on the corporate sector. We were doing research for that project. We happened to be sitting in a conference room at a big bank, a private bank in New York, um, and we had about an hour in between appointments doing research for this report on women in, you know, in careers and workplaces and had written things on the imposter syndrome and about how you know, women don't put themselves forward unless they're totally qualified for everything. And I was checking my email because you know we had about an hour to kill, and I received an invitation from, at the time, the undersecretary of the Army to participate in a debate uh, with another woman, so there wasn't a gender dynamic here, um, but who had been serving as the, uh, had been the head of uh, uh, CAPE, the center that does analyses there, sure. and had been the acting uh, Deputy Secretary of Defense for quite some time, inviting me to a debate in the Pentagon to debate her. I honestly can't remember what the proposition was, but you know, the Undersecretary was encouraging debate in front of Uh, senior officers and generals to sort of get through the idea that this is a good thing, different ideas clashing. And I turned to Dave, who is a retired three-star general, and I said, oh my God, look at this invitation that came in. And he said, oh, that's great. And I said, but I can't do it. (laughs) And he looked at me and he said, why not? I said, because she has way more experience than I do. There's no way I can hold my own in a debate with her. She knows so much more than I And I'd worked with him long enough that I know what the body language means. (laughs) And he gave me this look of death. It was just this look of death. And I knew what was coming, but I was bracing myself for it. Because, again, we were in the middle of researching the imposter syndrome, this very subject. And he looks at me and just sort of snarled, you idiot. (laughs) <laughs> At which point I broke down laughing and I was like, okay. He's like, you know, have you learned nothing? <laughs> Time to so, type out I accept. Exactly. Right now, Nora. So yeah. I did. And it turns out for a whole variety of other reasons, the debate never happened. But I did and I was, you know, about to do it. But I mean, it, it just sort of the absurdity of it. I mean, it was it was on the forefront of my mind because I was working on that very issue and I still fell. You know, fell prey to that. It's just something you have to learn to recognize over time, and that you you mess up because you still feel that way about it. Having people around you, both men and women. I mean, in this case, you know, Dave is obviously uh, obviously a guy, but you know, always has my career interests at heart. Or other people to just have those moments and say, you know, sort of smack you gently on the head and say, you idiot. You know, that helps a lot.
0: Yeah, it's it's funny. I think um, people or women can sometimes see male colleagues as presenting challenges in this department of working in a heavily male-dominated environment, sometimes with men that don't appreciate, the again, those unique challenges of being a woman operating in a national security environment. I think about my time at the Pentagon. But I also have encountered, as you just noted, men that will, in fact, serve as that mentor or sponsor or will sometimes give you the little nudge or the whack on the head or whatever it is to say come on you you're ready for this you can do it and I I wonder how you look at this in terms of what types of conversations do we need to be having with men in the workplace about women operating in the national security environment is there still more work there but also I do want to acknowledge that there are and as time goes by I think this gets a little better um, a number of men that do appreciate some things that they could do differently to make make it a different operating environment and maybe one that's a a little bit more accommodating sometimes to welcoming women into the national security field.
1: Yeah. um, I think that there still is a lot to be done um, in general, although I agree with you that more and more men uh, are getting that, and I've been, maybe this is a little self-serving, but I think more and more women, especially of sort of our mid-career generation, are taking that mission very seriously and reaching down to try to help, as well as reaching out at our level and above to both the men and women that we know to talk about some of these issues. I think we're at a point where, in general, a lot of the very overt stuff has become not okay. There are still terrible experiences that individual women have. I, I certainly don't want to deny that, but I, I think that's increasingly the exception rather than the rule. I think where there's a lot of work to be done is for some of the unconscious things, the unconscious bias, people not realizing that uh, you know scheduling something a meeting at 4:30 or 5 p.m., which just as easily like that doesn't need to be at that time, that just as easily could be during the working day, poses a you know, disproportionate problem for women. Um, interestingly, one of the things we found in doing the research for that report, the the um uh, battlefields and boardrooms report is that what used to be seen as women's issues things like flexibility at work and time with family and you know work-life balance which is a term we all hate but you know how do you you know be able to to have a little bit of a life outside of work whatever that involves these aren't actually seen as women's issues anymore by the younger generations for millennials both men and women that's right these are issues yeah. and so taking those kinds of things out of the domain of women's issues which makes it seem like like a special thing. Oh, we have to accommodate women, even if it's subconscious. Again, I think, generally speaking, you know, people, you know, would say that they want to be welcoming and they don't want to discriminate and and mean that very genuinely. Most people. Um, but the fact that these are now no longer being seen as women's issues and are now seen as employee issues, is a huge step forward. That's right. Um, yeah. Because it makes it normal. It's part of the human experience mm-hmm. to want to have interests and passions outside of work, whether that's having kids or whether that's training for a triathlon or, or whatever it may be for an individual. Mm-hmm. Um, and that's only only to the positive for women. It, it's to the positive for everyone. Yeah. But it makes it. More more normal and more acceptable. And I think that's pushing these conversations forward. Sure. But I think in general, there's just a, a tremendous amount still of unconscious bias of people not being aware of, you know, what their own reactions are. And we see this not just in issues of gender, but in issues of race, ethnicity. I mean, there's just such overwhelming evidence from the social sciences that people have these assumptions. People who, who you know, get are shocked when they take these tests and it's revealed to them because they don't want to be that way, but just don't see it very often. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, yeah. I will say too, you know, the first question you asked me is what do I tell women in the field? And I always start off by acknowledging that there are some real downsides and disadvantages. It's harder to get your voice heard. You know, I find myself having to interrupt my colleagues more often and things like that. And you know, I'm very open. I've had about as ideal an experience as I could have. I've never been, you know, overtly sexually harassed or or assaulted or anything like that. Nothing along those lines has ever happened to me, but I'm still very aware of it, and I'm like the best possible case. I mean, I'm very fortunate for that. But if I'm even feeling it and noticing it, then, you know, there's clearly a much more pervasive problem than just the direct stuff. Yeah. I always say that I, there, to me, is an advantage, a one advantage that I can you know easily point out about being a woman in this field. And, and maybe it's particularly for me dealing with the military. And that's that I stand out. That is not always a good thing, but I have found that quite often it is because you know, we are not the most diverse community on any dimension. Um, we are mostly male, we are mostly white. Um, we are mostly sort of middle-aged and older. And so anything that doesn't fit that mold tends to be memorable. Now, that can be a bad thing if you're seen as, you know, if the being seen as other leads to being seen as, less capable or, you know, you don't fit the mold, less qualified. So I'm very aware of all of that. But I also, you know, not infrequently have had the experience that when I give a talk to an audience of military officers, you know, two years later, I'll be talking to another group and someone will come up to me and say, hey, I saw you talk two years ago and I know. And they tell me, you know, I remember you because you were so different Mm -hmm. because I stood out in a good way. Again, because when I opened my mouth, I had something interesting to say. And I found that that in certain cases has been a very powerful advantage Um, you know is it worth the disadvantages and trade-offs I don't know we don't get to make those choices but you know I always make sure because I don't just want to talk about the negative stuff, when especially when younger women ask me that question that you started with about what's it like to be a woman in national security, um, you know that sometimes just that in and itself can be an advantage. I look forward to the day when it's not an advantage because right. we are yeah. such a, a you know a diverse community that I don't stand out because of that. Um, but it is something that that I think can have some really positive effects in the right circumstances. Yeah, that's a
0: good, a very good point. Um, so Nora, you've had. Um, all sorts of really fascinating and impressive work experiences. Um, You noted you were at CNAS, you're at AU now, you have an affiliation with the Atlantic Council, you worked at RAND, you have your PhD. Um, Looking back, you know, you've had a very impressive career um, What advice would you give your younger self, just starting out in the field of national security now with, I won't say how many years, more than a few (laughs) years uh, under your belt of working in the field now?
1: You know, someone asked me this question about a month ago, and I realized that my advice to my younger self would... Be to relax a little bit, (laughs) Um, you know. But I think that that's impossible. I think that that's just more the wisdom of aging and of getting older and having more experience under your belt. I mean, I, you know, was so nervous about my career and and you know. We've known each other that long. Right, I remember exactly, you know, meeting yes. you at that stage too, exactly. and and you know just being you know worrying about I want to make sure I get this experience and do this, and how can I put myself out there? And I'm a very Type A kind of neurotic person, uh, and so you know thinking th- and I'm a strategist, right? So I like to think things through 87 steps ahead of time and all of that. And I wish that part of me, some of that, I think for, just for my own personality, is what makes me effective. Um, everybody has a different personality. You certainly don't need to be that way. I know plenty of people who are not, you know, neurotically compulsive and, you know, that, that do quite well. Um, but I think for me, part of that helped me achieve my success because it helped keep me focused. And I was thinking, you know, very strategically and thinking about opportunities. But it also came with a lot of anxiety and a lot of that imposter syndrome of, yeah. I want to do this, but I don't think I'm qualified. And, and how do I do that, especially without a whole lot of role models? I think that is getting better. I think that the generation coming up now has more female role models in our generation, that mid-career generation, than we did among the Mm -hmm. now very senior women just because of numbers, just because you know we're we're really among the first wave of the, you know, children of the feminist movement that were able to benefit from that. So I see the numbers as helping with that. but I, I wish I could go back and leave some of the strategy and organization, but take away some of the anxiety and, and learn a little bit more just to let things be and that things work out. One of the lessons that I've learned over time is that even really very difficult things, things that I wouldn't have chosen along my path, and, and I'm talking, you know, for me, it's both my, my professional life and also my personal life. I, I think the lesson is the same for both, that things that I worked so hard for, wanted so much, if they didn't happen or if something went unexpectedly, even if it was awful, it opened up other doors that I benefited from tremendously. Um, And so even if I could go back and it's not the script I would have written, um, it's taken me in directions that I appreciate a lot. Um, I don't know how much of that is just becoming, you know, being a woman in the field, or some of that is just, just you, age. It's just age and just <laughs> lessons that you learn with age and, and looking back. Um, but I think that's, if I could go back in time, you know, to talk to, you know, me in particular as a younger person, not younger women in general, but a, a younger Nora, I would be like, you know, chill out a little bit. <laughs> it's going to be okay. <laughs>
0: Well, Nora, thanks so much. Thanks for your many contributions to the national security community here in Washington and beyond. And, but I, I want to say a special thanks to you for your interest in these issues and younger women entering the field of national security and being open, talking about it. I know you do a lot of mentoring. And we really salute you for all of that and hope that it'll just continue. And uh, hope we can have conversations like this again in the future
1: always, Julie. I'm always happy to do it, and I really do see it as a very important part of what, uh, of what we all can do for each other. You know, I often, um, when I talk to young people one-on-one, and they say, you know, how can I ever repay you? Uh, I usually get a very, you know, fake stern look on my face and say, you know, by talking to you, I am repaying all of the people who came before me, because nobody, male or female, whatever, you know, nobody gets where they are on their own. Everybody has help and advisors and mentors, and, you know, so I give them this sort of stern look and I say, you know, I'm repaying back the people who helped me, you will repay me by helping the people who come after you. And that's true at at every level. You know, I talk to college students and high school students, and, you know, they can mentor someone who's in high school or middle school. I mean, you know, I think it's really important that we all do that uh, for each other. So I really appreciate the opportunity to, to be here and be part of this tremendous project that you and your colleagues are organizing at CNAS.
0: Great. Thanks so much, Nora. Thanks.